Hi and welcome to Infatuated, the podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca. And today we have a little bit of an announcement for you. Do you want to (laughs) take it away, Emily? Yes. So we are switching up our schedule again. (laughs) (laughs) But this one we think will work better for us and hopefully for you guys too. Basically, we are going to move to a season format. So you can look at it as every episode up until now being season one. And then we're going to go on a little break now to regroup and make you guys some content that we think you'll love. And then we're going to come back on the 4th of June and you're going to get 10 episodes, weekly episodes. And then we'll do a little break again and so on, so forth. It just means that we can fit in a few weeks off between some seasons instead of constantly working on the show because... As you guys know, this is not our full-time job. It is our biggest passion, but it is not what we get paid to do. (laughs) Yeah, it's sadly not our full-time job, put it that way. So yeah, even though there will be times without episodes, you will get more episodes overall. So we think it's the best way to go and hope that you guys understand that. And we will still be active on our social media and I think we're going to work out some kind of live stream or some other kind of bonus content amongst the season breaks so you're not getting rid of us let's put it that way (laughs) and the content that you do get on these episodes is going to be so much better because our little brains will be rested and ready yeah yes exactly (laughs) so i i think that is the the spiel for today lovely so let's crack (laughs) on with what is i'm so sorry to say the last episode of season one yeah. Do you have a highlight for the episode, Emily? I do. My highlight's quite a silly one, <laughs> but it's that I found the perfect easy watch show. Okay. <laughs> and it's Taskmaster, which I have somehow never seen until now, even though it's been on TV for years. And it's literally just a bunch of comedians completing stupid tasks. That's it. It's okay. so simple. It's so funny. It's great TV. I highly recommend it. If you, like me... <laughs> are a bit like I've just not been in the mood for narrative tv drama Mm. it's just a good easy watch to stick on when you're not sure what you want to watch sweet that is a good highlight (laughs) what's yours my highlight is just kind of a bizarre thing that happened to me so I don't even know if it's a highlight it's just I need to share this with you so I went a walk on the beach last weekend because it was like sunny for once, which was really nice. And it was great, like I went a good ramble along the sand, along the rocks, blah blah blah, parked my car, left it, was away for maybe two hours, came back, my car was just in the middle of the road. What? Like I think it fell down the hill. And I didn't realise it was my car to begin with. I was like, someone's car is in the middle of the road as I was walking towards it. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, that's my car. Um, Whoa. So luckily it was fine. The car was fine. It didn't look like anyone had been hurt. It had obviously just come to a stop. But clearly need to get my handbrake checked. Oh my god. Yeah, please do. But I really just wish you could have been there to see my face. Because I was bemused. <laughs> It was so anticlimactic as well, because I was like, 
nothing's even happened. My car's just yeah. rebelling from the parking space. <laughs> it's just like, nah, I don't want to be parked here. I'm going to just slide into the middle of the seaside town road. Wow. So, what are you infatuated with this week? I am infatuated with All the Bright Places by Jennifer Niven. This came out in 2015 and has kind of been on my periphery for a while because it's one of my sister's favourite books. And then I watched the, the film adaptation of this when it came out about a year ago, which is fine, but it didn't like wow me. Yeah, it was the same. Yeah, but I could tell, I don't know if you could as well, that it came from a good book. Like, I could just tell that the reason it didn't emotionally affect me as much as it should have is because there would have been a lot of, like, introspection and, like, emotional internal monologue in the book. Yeah, there's a really good montage sequence in the film that I feel like if I'd read it would pack more of an emotional punch. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And so, yeah, because of that and because I've been staying at home and have access to my sister's bookshelf, I thought I would finally read it. And I should say, before I actually go on and explain what the book is, that there is a big trigger warning I should probably put in place. This is a book about suicide, and it also talks about mental illness and grief and abuse. So I'm not going to go too deep into those details, but I can't avoid talking about suicide in particular when discussing this book. So I'm just giving you fair warning that if you're sensitive to that topic, then we get it. You don't have to listen to it. So now that I have explained that, I'm going to read out the tagline to this book on the cover that says, this is the story of a girl who learns to live from a boy who wants to die, which is a great tagline for a book. So basically, Violet and Finch meet on the ledge of their high school bell tower and Finch essentially saves Violet from jumping, thus in turn stopping himself from jumping. And this meeting sparks a relationship between the two, which gets like much deeper as they embark on a school project together where they have to wander and chronicle their wanderings. But during this project, they fall in love, which is not a spoiler, <laughs> and both try and help each other like survive, I guess is the best way to put it. The book switches between their two perspectives, and I think it's a really great study of how a person can change like in a positive way when they meet the right person. They each have unique voices and both have really interesting arcs and I would say Finch was probably my favourite to read because he's quite a hard character to define and I like reading characters like that but also I think Violet is a really great example of a teenage girl just trying to survive being a teenager but also having this huge burden of like trauma mm. on top of her as well. To go back to the bell tower and why they are both there, Violet is in the depths of grief. Her sister died in a car crash, which Violet was also in. So she's dealing with that grief and survivor's guilt and losing interest in everything, including writing, which was something that she and her sister did together. Um, she just doesn't see the point in existing really and for Finch I'd say it's a little harder to pinpoint an exact situation he does have many issues which 
gradually come up throughout the book so I'm not going to list them right now but it is made clear that him wanting to commit suicide is not a one-time thing Mm. and I'm going to talk a bit more about Finch's character in a moment but first I wanted to answer a question I think a lot of people might have about this book which is does it glorify suicide or mental illness as a whole Mm. because this is a YA fiction and I think a lot of writers in this genre basically just get a lot of shit for glorifying or romanticizing sad things yeah but I actually think a lot of YA fiction does not do that and I don't think All the Bright Places does that Uh, it's a very hopeful book actually and the moments which are that leave you sobbing (laughs) or at least the ones that left me sobbing are the moments that are about hope and about like the joy of being alive and how the world is so much bigger than just your sadness and on that note I also think it's important to say that Jennifer Niven has personal experience with suicide and so I don't think she could write a book that glorifies it and I actually want to read out her author's note because I found it really moving and also I think it answers that question of why someone would write a book like this. Yeah okay I'm very intrigued to hear this. Yeah, I think the film does a good job of being like a romantic film without romanticising that as well. Yeah, I do think the film... There's a lot that the film got right, actually, but I think there's just... There's definitely, now that I've read this book, like, there's things that they left out that I, I guess you don't really need in a film, but you need for those characters. I don't know if that makes sense, but, like... The book's just so much richer that the film feels like a little bit diluted and I don't think, without trying to give away spoilers, I just don't think you feel as sad as you should. <laughs> Whereas yeah. in the book, you feel sad. <laughs> I, I think the film was like, it did a really good job of setting me up to be sad and then the emotional punch was not delivered. Whereas yes. I feel like from your face, when you're looking at this book, it absolutely was. <laughs> oh yeah, like I think I, I just... Like, there's just a point where I just cried from that point to the end of the book, so... (laughs) Right, hit me with this author's note. So, yeah, this is her author's note. Every 40 seconds, someone in the world dies by suicide. Every 40 seconds, someone is left behind to cope with the loss. Long before I was born, my great-grandfather died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. His oldest child, my grandfather, was just 13. No one knew if it was intentional or accidental, and being from a small town in the south, my grandfather and his mother and sisters never discussed it. But that death has affected our family for generations. Several years ago, a boy I knew and loved killed himself. I was the one who discovered him. The experience was not something I wanted to talk about, even with the people closest to me. To this day, many of my family and friends still don't know much of anything about it. For a long time, it was too painful to even think about, much less talk about, but it's important to talk about what happened. In all the bright places, Finch worries a lot about labels. There is, unfortunately, a good deal of stigma surrounding suicide and mental illness. When my great-grandfather died, people gossiped. Although his widow and his three children never spoke about what happened that day, they felt silently judged and, to some extent, ostracised. I lost my friend to suicide a year before I lost my father to cancer. They were both ill at the same time and they died within 14 months of each other, but their reaction to their illnesses and deaths could not have been more different. People rarely bring flowers to a suicide. 
It was only when writing this book that I learned my own label, survivor after suicide or survivor of suicide. And I'm going to stop at that point, but she does go on to provide many resources for suicide prevention, like mental illness, abuse, bullying, hotlines, uh, resources for survivors after suicide as well. But yeah, I think that's a really moving author's note. Yeah, God. It feels very, like, not sentimental, that's the wrong word, but, like, emotionally charged enough to do justice to the topic. Yeah, and so I think the the answer is no, that she's not glorifying this. She's writing, so it's talked about more, and I do really admire her for that, because I imagine it would have been a very hard book to write, given everything that I've just read out. Definitely. Fair play to her. Yeah, definitely. So I want to read out a section from Finch's perspective and the context for this quote is that Finch has awake days and asleep days. The awake days he's very lucid and lively and everything excites him and the asleep days I'm sure you can imagine are when he's just in like a deep hole of nothingness and Finch writes kind of like a journal where he documents the various ways he could commit suicide Mm. and also at this point again not spoiler he is falling in love with violet it's very bell jar yes it is at home in my room i am overcome by words words for songs words of places violet and i will go before time runs out and i'm asleep again i can't stop writing i don't want to stop even if i could January 31st. Method. None. On a scale of 1 to 10 on the how close did I come scale. Zero. Facts. The euthanasia coaster doesn't actually exist, but if it did, it would be a three-minute ride that involves a climb nearly a third of a mile long, up to 1,600 feet, followed by a sheer drop and seven loops. That final descent and series of loops takes 60 seconds, but the 10G centrifugal force that results from the 223 mile per hour loops is what kills you. And then there's this strange fold in time, and I realise I'm not writing anymore. I'm running. I'm still wearing the black sweater and the old blue jeans and sneakers and gloves, and suddenly my feet hurt and somehow I've made it all the way to Centerville, which is the next town over. I take off my shoes and pull off my hat and I walk all the way back home because for once I've worn myself out. But I feel good, necessary and tired and alive. Julie Jonas Urbonus, the man who thought up the euthanasia coaster, claims it's engineered to, humanely, with elegance and euphoria, take the life of a human being. Those 10 Gs create enough centrifugal force in the body so that the blood rushes down instead of up to the brain, which results in something called cerebral hypoxia, and this is what kills you. I walk through the black Indiana night under a ceiling of stars and think about the phrase elegance and euphoria and how it describes exactly what I feel with Violet. For once, I don't want to be anyone but Theodore Finch, the boy she sees. He understands what it is to be elegant and euphoric and a hundred different people, most of them flawed and stupid, part asshole, part screw up, part freak, a boy who wants to be easy for the folks around him so that he doesn't worry them and, most of all, easy for himself. A boy who belongs, here in the world, here in his own skin. He is exactly who I want to be and what I want my epitaph to say. The boy Violet Markey loves. Aww. (laughs) It's so sweet. 
The ceiling of stars got me. Oh, yeah, I love that line. (laughs) Yeah, I think this might be my favourite quote in the whole book. Because there are scenes which perhaps stick out in my mind more, um, like the ones that made me cry. (laughs) But (laughs) this quote stuck with me from the moment I read it. Because it's about halfway through the book and you do understand that Finch is suicidal. But even though he's writing about potentially killing himself, especially in such a frank way... Like, I see so much hope in that passage. Like, I see a boy who's striving to be better, not just for the girl he loves or for his, like, family and friends, but for himself. Mm -hmm. And I think you could write a version of this book where Finch only gets better because of Violet. And part of that argument of, like, you need support to get better obviously makes sense. But Nevin understands that nuance of how important it is having support from others, but also how internal a battle it is as well. Absolutely. And how, like, a lot of the time wanting to live is, like, the hardest thing. Yeah. Also, just textually, I love that idea of taking the roller coaster death being elegance and euphoria Mm. and then running with those words and using it to describe being in love especially a teenage love which always feels so dramatic anyway yeah Um, it's life or death isn't it yeah I just think it's so beautiful and throughout this book they talk in quotes to each other quite a bit and I wouldn't say that's a unique idea especially for YA fiction but what I love about how Nevin uses that trope or feature is that the characters themselves analyse the quotes and explain why those particular words mean something to them. So this intertextuality exists where they're using someone else's words to say something, but they're using their own words to explain why they picked someone else's words in the first place. <laughs> it just makes it feel real that they would quote like Virginia Woolf, for example, yeah. to each other. It's like infatuated. <laughs> Basically, yeah. So I want to read out a passage like this. So I'm actually going to jump back to one of their first proper conversations, which is done over Facebook Messenger, of course. Oh. (laughs) And this is a great passage, if you like Virginia Woolf. And this one's from Finch's perspective as well. I set my fingers on the keyboard, looking at the way they rest there, the nails broad and round. I run my hands along the keys as if I'm playing piano. And then I type, Obligatory family meals suck, especially when meat and denial are involved. I feel we can't go through another of those terrible times, especially when there's so much else to do. The quote is from Virginia Woolf's suicide note to her husband, but I think it fits the occasion. I send the message and wait around the computer, organising the pills into groups of three, then ten, when really I'm hoping for something from Violet. I work at buying the license plate flat again, scribble down another of those terrible times and add it to the wall of my room, which is already covered in notes just like this. The wall has various names, wall of thoughts, wall of ideas, wall of my mind, or just the wall, not to be confused with Pink Floyd. (laughs) The wall is a place to keep track of thoughts as fast as they come and remember them when they go away. Anything interesting or weird or even halfway inspired goes up there. An hour later, I check my Facebook page. Violet has written, Arrange whatever pieces come your way. My skin starts to burn. She's quoting Virginia Woolf back to me. My pulse has tripled its pace. Shit, I think. That's all the Virginia Woolf I know. (laughs) I do... (laughs) 
I do a quick internet search looking for just the right response. Suddenly I wish I'd paid more attention to Virginia Woolf, a writer I've never had much use for until now. Suddenly I wish I'd done nothing but study her for all of my 17 years. I type back, My own brain is to me the most unaccountable of machinery, always buzzing, humming, soaring, roaring, diving, and then buried in mud. And why? What's this passion for? This goes to what Violet said about time filler and how none of it matters, but it's also me exactly. Buzzing, humming, soaring, roaring, diving, and then falling deep into the mud, so deep I can't breathe. Leah sleeps and awakes, no in-betweens. It's a damn good quote, so good it gives me chills. I study the hair standing up in my arm, and by the time I look back at the screen, Violet has responded, When you consider things like the stars, our affairs don't seem to matter very much, do they? I'm full on cheating now, pulling up every Virginia Woolf site I can find. I wonder if she's cheating too. I write, I am rooted, but I flow. I nearly change my mind. I think about deleting the line, but then she writes back, I like that one. Where is it from? The waves. I cheat again and find the passage. Here's more. I feel a thousand capacities spring up in me. I am arch, gay, languid, melancholy by turns. I am rooted, but I flow. All gold, flowing. I decide to end there, mostly because I'm in a hurry to see if she'll write back. It takes her three minutes. I like, this is the most exciting moment I have ever known. I flutter, I ripple, I stream like a plant in the river, flowing this way, flowing that way, but rooted, so that he may come to me. Come, I say, come. My pulse isn't the only part of my body stirring now. I adjust myself and think how weirdly, stupidly sexy this is. I write, you make me feel gold, flowing. I post it without thinking. I can go on quoting Virginia Woolf. Believe me, the passage gets even hotter, but I decide I want to quote myself instead. Oh my God, that's so good. (laughs) It's so, oh, I just love it because it's so like teenager, I'm going to Google these quotes to impress this girl. (laughs) Like, it's really funny. But I think it's so sweet and charming as well (laughs) that he goes to that much effort. And also, he's like doing it because she likes Virginia Woolf, but then he's also like, oh, these quotes are really good. (laughs) Yeah, it's the fact that he's like enjoying it at the same time that like got me. Oh, it's so pure. Also, I I love Virginia Woolf, so all of those quotes, I'm just like, yes. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I I do love that you also have that moment at the end where he changes the quote slightly to say exactly what he wants to say. And I think it's lovely to acknowledge that your interests, especially when you're a teenager, are an important feature of your personality. But it's also important to learn how to be yourself and express yourself in your own words. And I think this passage is, like, kind of symbolic of that. Oh, yeah, Um, definitely. I hadn't thought of that. I think it's, like, moments like that that make the novel connect with people who don't have a connection with suicides or mental illness because it is still a story about teenage love and learning what's important to you and there is that kind of road trip aspect to it as well which does bring more like levity and fun Mm. to what could be a very harrowing story and the language is just so beautiful like it's just so quotable like for example finch's nickname for violet is ultraviolet and one day (laughs) 
one day he says to her, you are all the colours in one at full brightness, which is just the most stunning line ever. Oh my god. Where did we get one of these? <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, like, it's romantic, but it's it's also, like, a very original thing to say to someone, yet you know exactly what he's trying to say, yeah. um, which is, oh, I just love that line so much. I had to try and, like, wrangle it into my notes somehow but yeah that that's all I'm going to talk about today because I just think the story unravels in such a like beautiful and poignant way and I don't really want to quote too much from it because of that but yeah I really loved it I actually kind of want to buy my own copy so I can read it again like the story the characters the language is all just great and also I think it's really brave of Jennifer Niven to write a story which I imagine would have been really hard to do but I think it would have been very rewarding as well and yeah that's that's me this week <laughs> oh I love that I love that kind of book and I don't think I've read something that's made me feel like I'm reading The Fault in Our Stars <laughs> since you yeah. just described that it literally says on this the next Fault in Our Stars <laughs> on the cover <laughs> yeah I'm down I've not read like a I read quite a bit of YA fantasy recently but I've not read like a YA like fiction in Mm. in a really long time so it's quite nice to to read that fun so what is your infatuation this week (laughs) my infatuation is not YA (laughs) (laughs) my infatuation this week is Insatiable by Daisy Buchanan oh I've heard about this yes it is a romance novel and it is exactly as pornographic as the title makes it sound. <laughs> but yeah, it's like wicked fun. So I will tell you a little bit about the plot. And I'll try not to spoil too much. Basically follows the story of Violet. Oh, that's weird. Oh. <laughs> yeah, this is a Violet too. So Violet in Insatiable is a 20-something art enthusiast stuck in a dead-end job at a startup in London. It's a sort of typical rom-com beginning she's broke she's fallen out with her friends and family because she called off her wedding to her like university boyfriend she's absolutely plagued with self-esteem issues it's a very typical romance setup and it's almost too typical i would have said for a book that Mm. came out this year because it did at first present itself as very bridget jones and i was like okay it's 2021 though (laughs) Like, <laughs> but very soon into it, it flips from that sort of like hashtag relatable, like Richard Curtis vibes to basically gossip girl on speed. Okay. <laughs> so Violet meets Lottie, who is an art dealer of sorts, and she and her husband Simon offer Violet a job at their flashy new startup, and it turns out in part of their relationship. Okay. <laughs> so Violet <laughs> then gets su- sort of sucked into their world of like expensive holidays and expensive lunches and like sex parties and all these mad shenanigans and mm-hmm. you just kind of go along with her for the ride. It's great. I thought I'd talk a bit about the title, Insatiable, 
because I think that the overarching theme of this novel, if I had to like distill it to a word, is probably want. Okay. I quote this all the time. This is so funny because I was also had Virginia Woolf in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> but I quote this all the time, but there's a great bit in The Voyage Out by Virginia Woolf where a young girl in her 20s is sort of stammering and she's going like, I want, I want. And an older woman pats her on the shoulder and is like, I know. When I was young, I wanted to. <laughs> and it's just yeah. one of my favourite quotes ever. And I think this novel could really be summed up by that. It's just so full of, like, yearning. And aside from the sexual wanting, of which there is much, there is, like, <laughs> there's a total insatiability to Violet's character in other ways. She wants money. She wants status, validation, like, nice clothes, a nice place to live, beautiful art. And for me, it was like the vividness that she describes these desires with that made mm. the book like really come alive. Yeah. Basically, it feels like one long escapist daydream <laughs> where you're just like, none of this would happen, but it's so fun to like be a part of it. So I thought I'd read a few of my favourite passages that take the idea of insatiable outside of the realms of sex because I'm not reading porn on the podcast <laughs> damn damn sorry <laughs> listeners you're gonna have to subscribe and like pay us some money for that shit. <laughs> it's a different level of service so the first scene is the first scene of the book which finds Violet at a gallery event alone She's underdressed, she's circling the free food platters, and she's checking her phone to see if her, like, loose plans Tinder date is going to come and meet her. And this is where Violet meets Lottie. The dress is fine, really, but in this room, it sets me apart. And not in a, and there she was, Hollywood starlet, somebody please discover me way. It looks really, really cheap. I feel cheap. There's a loose thread trailing from the hem. I bend to snap it off and sigh as the crappy fabric puckers into a ladder. Not for the first time, I decide that I'm haunted by a sort of spiritual shabbiness. If my soul has fingernails, they are ragged and the polish is chipped. This room is filled with people who live frictionless lives. Everyone here looks as though they have been dry cleaned alongside their outfits. These people never get stood up. They are not eating partly because they've trained their bodies and minds into such perfect, graceful submission that they're beyond hunger, and partly because the phrase free food is no more exciting to them than ring road or assembly instructions. I'm overwhelmed with a longing so acute that I feel drunk. Will I ever be a real glossy grown-up? Will I ever go to a party like this and feel as though I belong? Will I ever get to a point in my life where I don't see a canopy, panic and rush to position myself by the kitchen door? Peering at the party goers, I search for clues. If I stare for long enough, perhaps the secrets of sophistication will reveal themselves, like a magic eye puzzle for failing adults. I gaze at a slender blonde woman who might be 25 or 45. She's wearing a sleek, velvet, sealskin suit. It's not quite blue or black. It's the colour of a countryside sky at night. The sort of shade you stop being able to summon from memory when you've moved to a city and you're always within six feet of an illuminated Tesco metro. I reach for another lobster roll. She's standing in front of an enormous mural of a smiling dolphin who's anally penetrating a suited man with a coke bottle. I should be taking a picture of this picture. I should be posting this to Instagram. 
urgent, prescient, contemporary, necessary. This is technically a work event. I should be taking a mental inventory and working out whether any of the organisations that we work with are naive or insane enough to put this in their lobbies. But even on my fourth glass of view, I'm struggling to summon any enthusiasm for conceptual dolphin rapists. (laughs) Shuddering, I remember an Erica Jong novel that featured a character who could only reach orgasm when penetrated with a bottle of a particular brand of champagne. I'm not sexually evolved enough to think about this without also thinking about how you'd explain yourself in A&E. Looking at my phone again feels like an admission of failure, but I can't stop myself. This is the part I hate the most. Single girls are supposed to behave as though we don't care. We need to pretend to be bored by the boys in order to make them want us. Our passion, I'm learning, is a passion killer. Now that I reek of lobster, there's a slightly stronger chance that Dan will appear, but it's half past eight, he said seven, and if I'm deeply honest with myself, I'll probably stop by, be nice to see you, and a winking face does not constitute a considered romantic gesture. I don't understand what I've done wrong. Is this because I sent him a heart by accident, because my thumbs are clumsy? I should give up and go home. Maybe I'll find that man with the honey mustard sausages, and then I'll give up and go home. Someone vaguely familiar is getting very agitated about a Jeff Koons-esque balloon model avocado. Oh, is that Rod Stewart? No. Against my better judgement, I press my smeary phone screen one more time. According to WhatsApp, Dan was last seen today at 7.28pm. Fuck you, Dan. I hope you're out with another girl right now, and you marry her, and she has all your babies, all 19 of them, and then you discover that she says yourself when she means you, and it's too late. (laughs) Then I see her. She's surrounded by noisy, gesticulating guests, but in a sea of shrieks and flying limbs, she's an island of stillness and silence. For a moment, I wonder whether she's meditating. Her smirk gives her away. This isn't a moment of deep spiritual peace. This is a woman remembering a private joke. I want to know what's making her smile and who cuts her hair. Where my hair is flyaway, frizzy, falling across my face, she has a perfect, blunt, glossy fringe that stops just above her eyeline. It has an effect on her gaze. She's coy, yet shrewd, part cinema verite ingenue and part Dame Judi Dench. She's two or three inches taller than me, but she's carrying herself as though the difference were two or three feet. She gives the impression of slimness rather than thinness. Words from decade-old gossip magazines float unbidden into my head. I hear Trainer and Pilates and Gwyneth and Tracy Anderson and Ashtanga Yoga and still something people do. As my brain makes me apologise to the people who have practised yoga for spiritual reasons for tens of thousands of years, it realises that she's wearing the £350 original Rixo version of my Topshop frock. I look beyond the hem. The Nanettes, of course. She's the glossiest person I've ever seen in real life. She's everything I've spent my adult life desperately trying and failing to be. I often feel as though I'm constantly, anxiously making an effort, even though failure is inevitable. I'm the human version of a smudged, crumpled maths exam paper. The result is never quite right, but at least I'm showing my working. This woman is a walking right answer. She looks as though she's never made a mistake in her life. I'm not sure that she's ever sweated. She's a beautiful, stylish person in a room filled with beautiful, stylish people, but has her confidence that is captivating. Even my mother would grudgingly say, She holds herself very well. Somehow, I don't think she learned this with a book balanced on her head. It's as though she's standing properly because she knows she owes it to her bones. Her feet are hip-width apart, her weight spread evenly across them. 
I become aware of my own body, the way I'm slouching to the left, with my right foot grinding a smear of mayonnaise into the parquet floor. Immediately, I stop and stand, as if called to attention. This is someone who is in charge of both of her feet, at all times. Even in a room full of power players, she has a noticeable aura. She has reached the next level of self-possession. So that's like quite a long passage, but I think it does a really good job of articulating Violet <laughs> as a narrator. Yeah. Captivating that feeling of like wanting to fit in, which everyone knows is bullshit, but I think there's something really cathartic in this about admitting it. Mm. And that ending line about self-possession really stuck out to me because after listing all of the superficial qualities that Violet wants to have Mm. and like could conceivably imitate that Mm. line hits to the heart of what's missing for her throughout the novel which is she could construct herself to look or act a certain way but she wouldn't believe it yeah so yeah i just i think that's a really great introduction to violet but also to lottie yeah definitely i like the line about the rixo dress and she has like the top shop knockoff version i'm just like yeah <laughs> it's someone who wants a rixo dress but would definitely have to buy the top shop version i get that <laughs> yeah i love the line about um if my soul has fingernails they're like chipped like they're chubby, the polish <laughs> yeah. is chipped or whatever i was like oh man i relate to that so much my nails are always a state so the next paragraph is a lot shorter it's from the same scene but i wanted to read out how violet talks about art so this is just after she makes contact with lottie i want lottie to like me and i want her to know that i love art not this art not the dicks and dolphins but that before i knew better i wanted to work at a choir because i believed it meant i could surround myself with beauty all day long I want to explain that pictures move me in ways I struggle to articulate, that living in my own head can feel intense and claustrophobic and untenable, but when I look at Cindy Sherman or an Edward Hopper or a Fragonard, it's as if someone has opened a trap door inside of me and I can escape myself and head towards the light. I want to tell her that I went to the Robert Rauschenberg exhibition at the Tate and wept all the way around because it humbled me and broke my heart to learn that he was making the boldest, bravest wall-sized collages at a time when the critical world was telling him that he was bad at art and shouldn't bother. But I don't want her to think I'm mad, so I try and be tactful too. (laughs) And that wee moment really stood out to me because, again, it's that repetition of I want. Yeah. Like, it's almost stream of consciousness. She starts out with the superficial, I want Lottie to like me. But she gradually gets to the root of wanting to be able to articulate these big, inexpressible emotions and passions. And then notably, and like so Britishly, when she gets too into it and the narration gets excited and effusive, she does that thing of catching herself and the next sentence breaks a spell and begins with, but I don't want. Yeah. She's like, but I don't want her to think I'm mad. Which I thought was really, like, I don't know, it was really poignant. It's like that idea of when you're getting really passionate about something and then you worry that you're annoying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whereas, actually, most people love hearing people talk about the stuff they're passionate about. Yeah. But we're all just conditioned <laughs> to believe that there wouldn't be. Incidentally, like, this is totally not anything to do with what I wanted to say, but this is just a really funny line that, <laughs> that I've just noticed when I was flicking through. But after that bit about the the dolphin picture, <laughs> Lottie's first line in the whole book is, Christ, it's all a bit... 
I mean, I thought we were post-cock. I'm feeling a bit post-cock, to be honest. <laughs> and I don't know why, but that just, like, it really made me laugh. Oh, that is a good line. <laughs> but yeah, so another big aspect of this book that I love is clothes. You've saw a bit of that in those passages, because mm. Violet is... Like a lot of millennial women, a product of her time and therefore hyper aware of how she looks. But this is a little passage about dressing and shopping with her former best pal Nadia as Violet prepares to go to Simon and Lottie's house for the first time after Mm. she becomes romantically involved with the couple. Today is a mistake outfit day. I'm in a charity shop special, a stonewashed denim button down pinafer that gapes around the chest. I've tried all kinds of unbuttoning tricks and combinations, but no matter what I do, my tits look octagonal. This directional look has been teamed with a grey ribbed polo neck that has been washed three times and febrezed under the armpits, but remains haunted by the ghost of the owner's B.O. It always seems fine in the morning, and then spookily, at exactly midday, I am enveloped by a smell that makes me think someone has stubbed out a cigarette on an expired packet of ham. I like to put this together with scuffed ankle boots and bobbly tights that have been washed with a bit of tissue for some classic day-to-night glamour. Obviously, this is emergency and I have to go shopping. Fortunately, no one even looks up as I bundle my coat over my arm, walking with real purpose. I imagine my credit card glowing green, plutonium in my pocket. I feel drunk on irresponsibility, on possibility. For the first time since my student days, I feel giddy. Sometimes, when we were getting ready to go out, Nadia would clutch me and say, with mock solemnity, you are going to be discovered in that dress. If anyone is going to see you and make you a star, tonight's the night. We both believed in clothes, dresses especially, with a religious fervour. Someday we would find the one, the second skin, the dress that will allow us to make sense of ourselves and match our insides to our outsides. We spent hours in changing rooms together, trapped and squealing, our arms encased in scratchy fabric trapped above our heads, never giving up on our search for total transformation. I miss her so much. I hate missing her. I hate that at least once a day something will make me forget what happened and then I have to remember it all over again. The shock is worse than the sadness. It's violent. She's not here. I have nothing to lose anymore. So why not gamble on a life-changing dress? I'm betting everything on red. Appropriate, because I'm already quite far in the red. I'm not going to bother with my usual high street spots. I won't even glance at a sale rail. My lizard brain has taken over. I'm so dizzy with thoughts of dresses that I briefly forget where I am, and I find myself coming to between Oxford Circus and Bond Street. It looks like I'm going to Selfridges. When I left the office, the idea of blowing £100 on a brand new dress felt like the height of decadence, the epitome of indulgence. Now that I am on the sweaty, spotlit shop floor, I realise that the dresses of my dreams cost five times as much as that. It's so depressing that I'm tempted to call Simon and cancel. I stand in front of a rack and frown furiously as the tears start to prickle my eyelids. I'm tempted to let rip and angrily blow my nose on a 1500 of Roland Mori when I'm nearly knocked over. Two giggling blonde women, both wearing fur jackets that are exactly the same colour as their hair, rush past and push me into a wobbly pirouette, causing me to crash into a row of dresses. I clutch one for support as I contemplate chasing after them with a coat hanger and realise it has a giant red tag. It's been reduced from £250 to £80 because there is a small hole at the back on the hem. 
It's made from soft matte black silk and it's dotted with tiny white stars. The bodice is slightly ruched and low and there is a suggestion of a puff at the top of the sleeves. Are you the one? My heart is pounding as I examine it for further flaws and discover that it's my size. No fucking way. I pay without trying it on, which is an act of faith or an act of madness, and then, telling myself that I probably need tights too, I find myself looking at the lingerie. For a second, I indulge in a daydream. It's a year from now, I work for Simon and Lottie, and I'm being paid lots. Enough to live in my own flat, enough to spend my weekends in Selfridges, buying beautiful lingerie for myself, for fun. That £500 whisper of apple blossom satin, trimmed with eyelash lace, would replace my current nightie a coffee-stained Gorilla Girls shirt. I hazily remember something I once read about erotic capital, the notion, I think, that sexuality can be used as a sort of professional power. You're not supposed to actually have sex at work, but if you're confident of your own sexual charisma, you can command respect and get things done. I'm not quite sure about it as a theory, but I would pay any amount of money for a pair of pants that stopped the interns from asking me to go down to the post room and collect their ASOS deliveries. Among the stacks of rose and lilac lace, I spot something in dark blue. The colour is not quite navy, but deeper, as luminous and liquid as ink. The knickers have an old-fashioned cut, wide at the hips and narrow at the waist, proper showgirl hot pants. They are made from a dense lace with an abstract floral pattern, which is surprisingly soft to the touch. The matching bra is equally simple. The only unusual details are the thickness of the straps and the band that sits under the breasts. This is proper adult lingerie, I realise, designed to reveal by being concealing. If I was to get changed in a phone box and unveil my super secret <laughs> superhero identity, this is what I would come out wearing. For a moment, I mentally flash on the image of Lottie gasping with lust at my lace as I drop my dress to the floor. This makes me long to be looked at and I make my way to the tills. Yeah, I thought that you might. I just, I love it because it's such a, like, giddy, like, girly celebration of clothes. Mm. Like, it's just joyful to see it put into words so well. Yeah. But I also really appreciate the way that she's woven these ideas of, like, female bonding and, like, competition and, like, sexual charisma into Mm. this one shopping trip. And I think she's quite concisely illustrated as well the way that the fashion industry can bring people together over this like passion for beauty while also pitting them against each other by making it about like competition and using clothes to elevate your status so like it's a lot to unpack but she does it really breezily and there's a part later in the novel where another character talks about Violet wearing her intelligence lightly and Mm. I think you can really see that in Daisy Buchanan's writing of her Mm. yeah And I'm going to read one more bit because this is all from quite near the beginning of the novel and to go much further in would give away like the more compelling plot points. Yeah. But this bit's fun and this bit's probably the most daydreamy bit. I (laughs) I love how much this character spends daydreaming. So this is the first night that she spends at Simon and Lottie's. She spends a lot of time in the novel thinking about what people's houses might look like. Um, Mm -hmm. And now she's seen theirs. So this is the morning after that first night where she wakes up in the guest bedroom alone. Everything is so beautifully and blindingly white. I feel as though I've woken up, flung the curtains open and discovered banks upon banks of snow. This is the nicest place I've woken up since Mark and I stayed in a country hotel when one of his school friends got married in Berkshire. 
At the time, I failed to fully appreciate it because I was horribly hungover. We missed the hotel breakfast and I ended up having a very dry, sugar-free blueberry muffin in the Costa at Sheevely Services. Just for fun, I roll over twice before coming to the end of the mattress. Right now, I feel reborn. It's as though the luxury bedding has permeated my skin and I'm a couple of steps closer to a shiny future filled with crisp, clean cotton. I wonder what Lottie and Simon have planned for today. They will probably have toast and coffee. Well, maybe just coffee, as if Lottie is still ducanning, although she did make some serious inroads into that pizza. They'll make coffee with a gleaming, bean-grinding machine. No nonsense pods for them. And they'll read the Times and the Guardian, and they'll know what the columnists are going to say in advance, because they're all friends, or friends of friends, and probably live over the road. Perhaps they'll potter about locally, they'll look at shops like Fired Earth, and they'll see a battered old armchair, and talk about whether it's worth buying it, and having it recovered, and would it do for the den, and is there really any room for it anywhere else? And then they'll go somewhere smart for salad and cold white wine, or perhaps that nice pub with the fireplace, where they will immediately get a good table and no one will accidentally put their elbow in a half-squeezed packet of ketchup. Then they'll walk to the heath, or maybe get on a bus and go to the gallery, and it will be a bright red bus with passengers who could have walked out of a Richard Curtis casting, fellow professionals in soft leather boots and £100 scarves, and no one will play Skepta from their phones at them, or ask if they want saving by Jesus Christ, or tell them that they're cunts, cunts, cunts. There's a part of me that would love to spend the rest of the weekend here, but I'm terrified of outstaying my welcome. All I know is that I'm simply desperate not to go home. Because when I shower at home, the water doesn't blast me clean, but trickles lukewarm onto my head, somehow making me dirtier than I was when I got in. I won't have a warm, dry, fluffy towel to swaddle myself in, but a crispy, greasy, hard one that smells as old and damp as it feels. When I eat dinner tonight, there won't be a table to sit at, and I'll have to perch at the end of my bed again, using piled-up magazines as a tray. If I make a lot of effort, and hang my clothes up, and turn on the fairy lights that I hung over the mirror, and light a couple of candles, Muji ones, I have the smallest diptych fait de bois that money can buy, and I'd only light it if I knew that I had a week to live. My sad little room has an almost romantic quality. I can pretend that I'm in a turn-of-the-century hovel instead of a 21st-century one. It's especially effective when I've been crying. It looks a lot more bearable when your eyes are puffy and your vision is blurred. Still, there is nothing I can do about the fact that every square centimetre of the flat feels gritty underfoot, no matter how many times I run the crappy vacuum cleaner over it, or the fact that I have no real idea who my housemates are beyond knowing they are nocturnal, furious door slammers. The only thing I like about the flat is that they seem to go out for weeks at a time. When hungover, I've spent enough time contemplating the toilet bowl to realise that not even a controlled explosion could shift the grey and brown stains. It's impossible for me to shake the mounting dread that starts at the back of my throat when I get off the bus and spreads into my stomach, across my shoulders and down my back as I wonder if the post has come and whether today is the day that the unopened white envelopes turn scary and brown and if I will ever be able to cross my own threshold without comparing the sensation to leaping over a pit of especially venomous snakes. Still, the longer I leave it, the more anxious I'll get. I need to leave, brave my bus, the 133, check for terrifying post, wash my hair, chuck my sexy outfit in the wash and get on with my day, with my life. She's so descriptive. I know, I love it. And I think it's really funny as well, like the way that she describes 
basic middle class English living as if it's like her mm. biggest romantic fantasy. <laughs> yeah. um, like she puts so much detail in it. And especially because the chapter before this is like all of them having sex and it is not mm. nearly as long a chapter <laughs> as that. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's really well observed and witty, but it's also kind of depressing because what she wants seems so vapid to me. But fortunately for the book, I think if that stayed, the book would have no real driver about it. But this like setup of Violet is kind of the precipice from which the story falls and mm. the rest of the novel goes on to like really look at all these desires and sort of interrogate them and as you can imagine, like a lot of them crumble. Yeah. And you know, there's a proper emotional journey. I don't really have a lot more to say about it. It's a fun read, it's quite luxurious. But what I liked best about Insatiable was that it really lives up to the title. It's a very greedy book. And you get to spend a lot of time indulging yourself in a world that is extremely fake, but really luxurious. Nice. It was fun times. <laughs> not for young readers. <laughs> Definitely not no. for young readers. <laughs> do you have any writing chat for us? I do. So the writing stuff I want to talk about today is actually a question from a listener that I've snuck in because it's actually something that I was thinking of talking about at some point anyway. So it's from friend of the podcast D and he has asked, do you find it hard to balance time for reading and time for writing? Do you have any tips? The reason I find this interesting is because I do think there's a relationship between reading and writing. Like I tend to write not necessarily always more but better when I've been reading a lot and it's something we've said many times on here before that we were told like on our first day of creative writing classes that if you want to be a good writer you have to be a good reader and I do stand by that. I suppose if I were to give advice I'd say that you shouldn't really look at reading as being unproductive. I think if you're a writer especially reading is basically research like even if you're not consciously thinking about it or like going as far to annotate your pages or whatever like you're still taking in what you think is great language or what makes a good story or you know any kind of details like that so basically I wouldn't contest the two because anytime you're spending reading is going to benefit your writing and I guess to answer the question I don't really spend as much time writing as I do reading but I don't really feel anything negative about that (laughs) because honestly I just read when I want to read and write when I want to write and I don't really try and think about balancing those too much I don't know do you have any thoughts on that? I think I agree with you I think what you said about reading without guilt is kind of the crux of it like I don't know I feel like reading is what sustains me when writing isn't happening. And so I feel like when you're reading, it's just kind of incubating ideas for writing. It's like, it's part of it. Yeah, I don't think I think about balancing them either because I see them as kind of the same activity in a way. Mm -hmm. But I I do understand the question in that sometimes it is a choice in a day between do I have time to read a bit or do I have time to write a bit? 
And I guess I'd just say that when I'm faced with that question, normally what I want to do is read. And I also don't feel bad about that. (laughs) Yeah. Do you have any rating chat this week? I am once again here to tell you that I have written fuck all. (laughs) Really nothing. I don't know if I can still call myself a writer at this point. I feel like I'm a person who once wrote things. (laughs) But... I have signed up to a six-week writing course with my favouritest poet, Sabrina Benham, which is kicking off next month, and I'm really hoping that that will kick me into gear, but also, like, I'm buzzing for it. I think it's going to be really fun. Yeah, I feel like I've forgotten a bit of the joy of writing, Mm. and I know that logically, but that doesn't make it easier to get it back, Mm. so I feel like this is the first thing that's made me be excited to get writing again. That's cool. Do you know what kind of things it entails? Like what the workshop is? or Not really. It's called Button Up because it's run by Button Poetry and she is one of their mm. star poets. But no, I think it's it's just six weeks of poetry writing workshops with her. But I know from the free ones that I've done on her Good News Open Mic that she comes at poetry in ways that really like surprise me but they also work to inspire me i like i think i think i wrote like four poems in an hour the last time that i went to one of her workshops (laughs) so i feel like i don't know just that push from someone that i admire and that like i feel like her writing speaks to me so her writing process is like something that i want to just absorb yeah definitely i think that'll be very useful yeah <laughs> i'm really you. excited <laughs> do you have a quick fire favorite yes my favorite this week is the screen test which i have been watching on amazon prime video youtube channel but you can also get it as a podcast and this is a show where a panel will get together and debate which is the best film in a particular category. Ooh. So some of them have been like best disaster movie, best 80s comedy, and they did best Oscar, best picture winner. So it's so good if you're like Rebecca and I and like to get really nerdy about <laughs> films and filmmaking. So each episode they like argue about the cast, memorable moments, the craft of the film and the cultural impact. Mm. And so you do get this really interesting conversation about three films that are normally like wildly different, even when they're classified as the same category. And it's just, it's just so fun. It's hosted by Jack Howard, who I'm already a big fan of. He started out on YouTube doing like sketch comedy, but has evolved into this really great filmmaker and he's really passionate about film as are the guests as well so it's just really lovely to watch and I think the reason I like it so much is because it's like friendly competition like Mm. there's obviously like fight and talk like banter between everyone but no one takes it so seriously that there's like no fun. Yeah. So yeah, if you if you like films and want to see cool people get excited over them, it is the show for you. And I always leave each episode like wanting to watch all the films, <laughs> whether it's oh, like a new a new find or like something I just haven't seen 
in a while or whatever. So I count that as as a bonus as well. How long are the episodes? They're like an hour. Okay. Uh, I think Hazel Hayes has just recorded one, so she's going to be on. Sweet. And I think I think Dodie as well is going to be on one. That's cool. Talking about La La Land. <gasps> yes, because Dodie loves La La Land. And I yeah. love Dodie. And I love La La Land. <laughs> Oh, I'll have to watch that just for that episode even. <laughs> yeah. What is your quickfire favourite? My quickfire favourite this week is a children's book. Mm. It's called The Enchanted Forest by Ida Rental Uthwaite and it was released in 1921. Full disclosure, I haven't read the book and I don't own it, but <laughs> <laughs> I saw an illustration from it. And I ended up looking up all these pictures from it online and I literally lost hours of my life. Oh, are they the You posted a couple to our Yes, Instagram. I did. Yeah. I posted yeah. it on our story. They're so gorgeous. So it's all these illustrations of fairies in this magical woodland. And they all have like different powers and different like elements that they're attached to. But the drawing style is so... Like, I don't know, it's so nostalgic and the colour palettes are so muted, but they feel really rich. Yeah. So now now I just really want the book. <laughs> mm. They're quite, like, whimsical, I think mm-hmm. is how I'd describe them. Yeah, yeah, they totally are. Like, they're old, but they were for children, and you can tell. So yeah, when I was little, I loved fairies and, like, fairy imagery. And I feel like I've rediscovered that this week with this book. <laughs> so... Yeah, I have been having a great time looking at that and I did post a couple to our story but I will maybe post some more when this episode is out and people can have a look. Nice! Do you have a route for us? I do indeed. I found this on my travels last week in a column called Nature Watch by Keith Broomfield and I thought it was lovely so I wanted to share it. This is a little bit about the etymology of the word anemone and some (laughs) of the lore around wood anemones. Also, I've been saying that word wrong for my entire life. (laughs) So if I say it wrong on this i'm so sorry i've been saying anemone my whole entire oh, life and it's anemone no. and i yeah I, it feels very strange on my tongue <laughs> but anyway the name anemone is derived from greek and it means wind flower it is a most appropriate name for when the wind blows the white petals quiver and shake in quite delightful fashion in greek mythology Anemone flowers sprang up where Aphrodite's tears fell as she wept over the death of her lover Adonis. The Romans considered wood anemones a lucky charm and picked the first few flowers that appeared each year to ward off fever. Other folklore connects wood anemones to magical fairies who were believed to sleep within their petals after they closed at sunset. And then he has a little note that says wood anemones and lesser celandines have inspired humankind from the earliest of times and they continue to do so to this day. The 19th century poet John Clare wrote of wood anemones as being weeping flowers in thousands perled in dew. A perfect description for perfect flowers. Oh, I love that. I know, isn't it lovely? I'm and I like... 
Oh no, carry on. <laughs> I was just gonna say I love that it means wind flower because if you think about sea anemones, mm, it looks like yeah. they're waving in the wind. Yeah, that's true. I was just gonna say I, for a future project, I'm using flowers and their meanings for a lot of things. So I feel like I'm gonna have to like log that away in my brain for, oh, definitely. for future writing. <laughs> That's so weird that you say that because I was talking about that yesterday about the meanings of flowers in writing and how it's like such a fun thing to write about. Yeah, it's weird because I was talking about that project with Stephanie and saying like, oh, I have this idea for this thing and it's the meanings of flowers are going to be important. And then I read The Bone Season by Samantha Shannon which I'm, I won't do an episode on because the series isn't finished yet so I don't want to like mm. talk about it yet. But in that series, like, the meanings of flowers are really important. And I was like, so it feels like it's one of those weird, like, coincidences where it's just always happening in my life now. <laughs> yeah, well, I was having a conversation with my writer friend, Lyndon Forster. Now that I think about it, it's because Lyndon and his brother Rowan are both named after trees. So I think I always mm. just think about, like, the names of plants when I'm talking to them. <laughs> yeah. But... Yeah, we had this whole conversation about like how flowers, like bouquets, used to be used to send codes and things like that. Yeah, and I love that. That's exactly what happens in the bone season. Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> I love that we're the same person. <laughs> do you have an insight for us? I do. So I'm going to tell you another Cornish legend today, Woo. or or a story. I'm going to tell you about the origins of Stargazy Pie. Do, do you know what this is? No, that's an amazing okay. name. <laughs> okay, so Stargazy Pie is a fish pie that has the fish head sticking up out of the pastry as if they're like looking up at the stars. That's horrifying. I know, and I'm going to tell you why. <laughs> so, basically, there's this little village in Cornwall called Mousel which is very lovely. I've been there a few times. And it's right on the coast. And honestly, it's like mostly harbour, but it is very nice. It's a little fishing village. So the story goes that in the 16th century, there was a particularly stormy winter. So none of the fishing boats could get out of the harbour to go fish. And it was coming up to Christmas and everyone was starving. And so this fisherman called Tom Bocock decided to take it on himself to go fishing. And despite the storm, he managed to catch enough fish to feed the entire village. And in celebration, they baked all of the fish into a giant pie for everyone to eat. And it had the heads of the fish poking out to prove that there was in fact fish in there. (laughs) That's disgusting. And these days... There's a celebration on the 23rd of December in Mausel in Tom's honour where they parade a massive stargazy pie like the one in the story and the local pub there also serve them to be eaten. And that is the story behind stargazy pie. I want to know who is eating this, who is paying for it and why they've not had therapy. But it's just a fish pie. But why has it got a fish head in it? It's so gross. Yeah, but it's just it's just sticking out. You don't really eat like the head but i don't want to i don't want to eat something where the fish head is looking at me maybe this is just me yeah because like i've eaten fish that still has the head attached (laughs) oh no man (laughs) so no from me (laughs) but it was a a fun story though 
So let's never take Rebecca to Mausel. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> Basically. I'm, I'm down to not do that. I'm fine to live my life without stargazy pie in it. <laughs> what a cute name, though. <laughs> it is a cute name. I thought it was going to be a lot more appetising from, from yeah. the Yeah. No. <laughs> no. Oh, well. <laughs> do we have a question submitted from the listeners this week? We do. I like this question. It's funny. Okay. So this is from Rhiannon. She has asked us, a literature stud you'll never get over. Oh. <laughs> I have my answer prepared. Would you like me to go first? Yeah, you crack on. <laughs> my answer is easy because even with all of the literature studs I have met in my many years of reading, a name still immediately came to mind when I read this question. And that is Will Herondale, who Cassandra Clare wrote in her Infernal Devices series. And he's also older in the Last Hours series. And I can tell I can tell you why. I, Go uh, ahead. He's tall. He has black hair, blue eyes. He's Welsh. I like the Welsh accent. Mm-hmm. But what I actually like about him is that he comes across as first as like the sarcastic nothing hurts me (laughs) kind of character Mm -hmm. but he has genuine depth to him and a huge emotional arc that like actually explains why he acts the way he does but doesn't just come across as like an excuse Mm. and by the end of the infernal devices he is just the most romantic character ever like i love him because he loves so much there's like the romantic love which is just gorgeous to read because he and the character he loves are both obsessed with books and he refers to books as the only things he can be honest with and and then it becomes (laughs) her and then he says books saved his life and then she does and it's all just this lovely like (laughs) metaphor but also he has the most incredible friendship with another character like they're like brothers and love Mm -hmm. each other so much and I genuinely think the only reason you like Will at first isn't the sarcasm it's like even though that's funny it's how much he cares about that friend so you're like you're like oh he's been a bit of a dick but like clearly he's nice because he cares about this lovely boy So yeah, he's just so well written and now he's older in the last hour of series and he's like an embarrassing dad because he never shuts up about how much he loves his wife and oh. I just kind of love him even more for that. <laughs> so yeah, Will Herondale, always. I feel like that's like gone from absolute stud to like Phil Dunphy vibes from Modern Family and it's oh, so cute. Oh, 100%. <laughs> that's adorable. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I love that. Is he the one that you read the passage about the paintings? No, that's Julian Blackthorne. Okay. No, it's a different guy. He's okay. a couple hundred years later than... Sweet. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I'm still trying to think. Give me a wee second. I don't... The thing is, I don't think you get as attached as I do. No. I don't read that many books where the men are nice. <laughs> Now, I was trying to see if I had an original thought in my head or if I really was as much of a basic bitch as I thought that I was, but <laughs> I am that basic bitch, and the name that came to mind and my final answer is Mr. Darcy. Oh, that is a good <laughs> choice, to be fair. <laughs> I will never get over Mr. Darcy, he's such an asshole, but like... <laughs> 
It's the fact he's so ridiculous. Yeah. He just... To insult someone while also proposing to them is just a mood. Darcy is, like, the prototype for the... I think, like, the sarcastic but lovable boy lead. Like, like you can see the origins (laughs) in Mr. Darcy, for sure. Absolutely. And, like, I don't know, just the fact that he is so afraid of his emotions that he convinces his friend to, like, leave town. (laughs) Because he's just like, no. My commitment-phobic ass really relates (laughs) and appreciates Mr. Darcy. (laughs) Oh, that was a good question, though. Yeah, I thought it was... I thought it was a a fun one. (laughs) Well, is that us for the season? Yes, season one is over. When did we start? It was the anniversary of lockdown just recently, so this feels, like, poignant. I think we started around the end of June, Mm. if I remember right. So we'll be back almost a year from when we started. Yeah, we'll be back on the 4th of June for season two. And I suppose until then, our email is infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com. Our social media is linked in the show notes, along with everything we talked about today, as well as the Infatuated Mix, which has all the music we mention. And please rate and review us on your podcast apps to help us get seen and i suppose until the fourth of june just keep chatting to us on on the social media we'll still be there (laughs) yep we'll still be there we love you season two coming soon get hype (laughs) (laughs) bye bye